Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the first evening of Ask. And we are really happy that you're here. And we really don't know what we're doing. We but, don't. But, well, we, like, we've, got, we've got a schedule. So um, as you know, we asked you all to send in questions uh, over the last month. And we've really gotten a lot. And I want to thank you for that. So tonight, we want to honor that and go through the questions that have been sent in. So what we're going to be doing this evening is kind of dialoguing the two of us. Um, I'll ask a question that you've sent in and then possibly do some follow-up questions with Dave. Um, but we're going to try to keep it to that and keep any additional questions until about 8.30 when we'll open it up and see if there's any more questions you have to ask. Um, you know the rest because we're the effect. Yeah, yes, Jim? <laughs> Gee, thanks. Dave? <laughs> it stands for Pregunta. Ask. It is, it is not an acronym. So, well, we had soak, so we were trying to go with a one-word, or one-syllable, one-word descriptions of whatever the event is. Sounded. That's, that's, you know what, that... There's you, one in every crowd. And I think we welcome it. Is this fountain bugging anybody? Should we turn off the water? It's very zen. What do you think? What did you no. say, Frank? Okay. It's okay? Okay. Okay, so that's the schedule. So if you'd just hold those questions till the end, that would be great. Um, how we thought we'd start out when I talked to Dave is, he actually said, what would have you liked to have known when you came to the effect that you didn't know? And I thought, gosh, that's a really good question because um, just to give a little bit of background, Steve and I had come out of a mega church where we'd been for 27 years. And we were very used to um, a very formulaic. There were every sermon we heard had a little handout in it where there were 20 blanks to fill in. And uh, we got very conditioned by that over the years. Uh, the other thing was uh, the concept of constantly being encouraged to get plugged in, plugged into this, plugged into a small group. And what I found out was I was tired and burnt out at about the 25-year mark. And it was mostly due to the fact that I'd been plugged in for so long, I was screaming inside to get unplugged and just be. So in about 2008, um, I'd been really praying up until that point, God, where do you want us? You're, you've got to be a lot bigger than what I've been learning here at this church. And uh, not to take anything away from that church, we got a great foundation there. We got a lot of good, solid biblical teaching, but it just had become too much. And I wasn't I wasn't communicating with God in a way and understanding God in a way that I was hearing other people and reading about other people doing. So I was very curious about that. Um, as many of you know, in, in 2008, we got the call, uh, a phone call from our son who was away at college saying, I'm addicted to prescription pills and, um, you know, I need help. And the next five years were pretty traumatic and chaotic with other family crises um, happening. And all of a sudden, all those blanks I'd filled in, all those concepts I'd heard about God, they weren't working. They weren't panning out. And I realized at that time I'd gotten a lot of head teaching that was solid and good, but I hadn't really developed a one-on-one -on -one relationship with God. Dave talks a lot about the contemplative life, and I had not had any exposure to that. And probably had I 
I may have even thought that that was quite cultish because I was so within the box and so within the black and white thinking uh, that I didn't know how to think outside of that. So we actually took about two years off from church because I just thought what I wanted didn't exist out there. And I think it was about 2010, 2012 probably, is when I came across the effects information online and had heard about it, probably because of the recovery community. And so I, I actually connected with Nina as a result of Pacific Hills, which is one of the many stops our son made along the way. And um, she mentioned that this is where she, had, she went, or she, it, there was a connection there. So we ended up here and hugged that back row for probably a good six months while we were trying to figure out what in the world the effect was, because it was really outside my box. And so that led us to a point where we started asking questions among ourselves, but really couldn't get answers as to what this place was, except whatever Dave was saying sounded really good, and I wanted more of it. And the main thing that I realized was, was my anxiety level came from about a 10 down to a 2 because I wasn't being solicited for anything. No one was asking me to do anything or give anything or build a new building or join a small group. It was almost the opposite. And I kept looking at Steve going, I don't even know if there's a membership program here. And yet there was freedom in all of that. So... Dave asked me when we were talking the other day, he said, what, were, what are some of the things you wish you knew? So I've got a list of things here, Dave, that I wished I had known when, when we came here. And this is just how we're going to kind of start out, and this will lead into the questions. I wanted to know, was it a Christ-centered church? He was talking about Jesus, but was that really at the heart of it? Was it evangelical? Um, was it an emerging church? Boy, back then, I don't know about any of you, but that was, that was the... That was on the street as being the worst thing you could be a part of. So I wanted to make sure it wasn't an emerging church, even though I didn't know what that was. Um, but can some of you relate the fear out there that we internalize as a result of some of the teachings? And so that, that, that stops us from being curious, which is what I find Dave to be the opposite of that. You know, he invites us to be curious. He invites, invites us to ask questions. Um, was it strictly a recovery church? Did it have any relevance for those of us not in recovery? Because I kind of felt like the, man, the odd man out. My husband's in recovery. My brother was in recovery. My son's in recovery. I wasn't. Did it, was there a place here for me? Where do you stand on salvation? Where were those altar calls, Dave? <laughs> that was kind of freaking us out a little bit. Why no outlines? How come I didn't have something I could fill in a blank for and find out what God was doing? Uh, why was I no longer feeling anxious and the need to f perform? And how do I explain this church to others? Because my friends that were still back at that megachurch were looking at me a little strange, thinking, wow, she's gone off the deep end. We've got to get her back. She's joined something that she shouldn't have joined. Mm -hmm. So, Dave, help me out here. Okay. What do you want to know? All that stuff? Yeah, I want to know that stuff. <laughs> Well, yes. let me start by saying this, and then you can ask me one of the, those questions one at a time, sure. and we'll go back through them. You know, okay. what is the effect, and why is it different? What is the difference between the effect and, and other churches that you might have, have experienced? You know, I think the, the difference is in two primary areas. 
The first one is, is that we're going to look at Jesus and following Jesus from a first century Jewish point of view. And that changes everything. And I had, when I started from an evangelical base, having been raised Catholic and then moved over to an evangelical church, I had no idea what any of that meant. And I had no idea how fundamentally changing it was going to be to look at Jesus from that vantage point. I figured that the, the truth that I was looking for uh, was going to be most apparent at the beginnings of things. So I just made it my business to start studying Christianity from the, from the origins, which led me to realize that it was based in Judaism, which led me to a study of the, of the original languages of, of Aramaic and Hebrew, which then led me to meet a Jesus that I had never met before. And every single word, the big words of, of theology and the big words of church, like good and evil and sin and salvation and love and forgiveness and all of those words meant something different when you put it back into that context. And every time that you did that, every time that I took a difficult passage and put it back into the language as I was as in, in the context as I was learning it, it always pointed back to the Father's love. And so by looking at Jesus and Jesus' message from a first century Jewish point of view, it was always pointing directly to the Father as an unconditional lover, as an absolute lover. And any passage that seemed to contradict that, whether it was Old Testament or New Testament, resolved itself always in favor of the Father's love. And so there was that piece of it. The other piece that distinguishes us is that we don't believe that primarily our relationship with God is intellectual. It's experiential, which leads us to a contemplative way of life. And that word contemplative simply means the ability to experience God directly, to have a, a presence, a connection with God that is direct and not dependent on the filter through our intellect. That means our, our relationship with God is not primarily theological. It's not doctrinal. Those are tools that we use and need. Religion is a tool that we need to funnel us toward that experience. But the experience is the primary thing. And so when you start to understand what Jesus means by kingdom, everything changes. And it changes in favor of that direct experience. And so the method and the madness here and every one of the questions that, that Tina's going to ask me is going to be looked at through that filter and why everything shifts and changes is because this is what we're doing. And, and why is this important? Because if we don't get this notion of the Father's love completely and deeply understood to our socks, inside our bones, if there's anything left in us that thinks that this relationship with God is performance-based, that there's something that I must do in order to become acceptable, then the good news is off. Kingdom is off. Everything that Jesus is about is off. You know, we, we cannot get on that hamster wheel and think that we can somehow eke our way and inch our way into acceptance of God because it doesn't work that way. Either we are already acceptable because we're sitting here breathing, or we're not ever going to be if we're trying to do it through law, through obedience, or through any other means. And so those two things are absolutely essential. And that's what's going to distinguish us from most other churches. Not all, you know, but this is, this is really where it's at. So what was that first question? Well, that first question was, is this a Christ-centered church? Okay. Yes, absolutely it's a Christ-centered church. 
but now we have to define what we mean by Christ-centered. See, this is the problem. She's going to ask about Christ-centered, and she's going to ask about evangelical. What do those terms mean? Do you know that it is almost impossible to get a definition of evangelical Mm -hmm. anymore? And and everybody throws that around. Emerging church was going to be the next one. Nobody really knows what that means. We throw these things around as if we understand, and we sort of have this general contextual idea, but we don't really know. When we say Christ-centered church, what we typically mean is Christ-centered as understood through this evangelical lens. What Christ really means, Christos in, in Greek, is an anointed one. And so Christ is a translation of the Greek Christos, and which is a translation of the Hebrew Mashiach, which in English is Messiah, but it means an anointed one. We think of it as meaning Savior, we think of it meaning as so many different things, but there's a different word for that. Mm-hmm. So who was anointed in that culture? Kings were anointed, priests were anointed, and prophets were anointed. So the Mashiach, the Christos, is the anointed one, and this is how Jesus functioned. He functions as priest and prophet and as king. So are we Christ-centered in, in, the, in the sense that we look at Jesus that way? Absolutely. We look at him that way. We look at him as the fullness of everything that we need to know in order to approach the Father. Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but through me. And I believe that literally. As long as we understand that way means a way of living, a way of, 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 of moving forward in life, not a way of understanding theologically, but a way of actually choosing relating, loving, breathing, all those things. There is a way of doing that. Jesus doesn't give us a theology. He gives us a way of living life. His first followers called themselves followers of the way, not followers of Christ or followers of Jesus, but followers of this way. They understood that if they followed this way, they were going to come into direct contact with the Father, and that was the most important thing to them. So yes, we're Christ-centered, understood that way. Mm -hmm. Even though an evangelical may look at us and say, we're not, because we're not understanding the theology in exactly the same way. What's an evangelical? Oh my gosh, you know. Probably the best is, uh, is it Bruce Bebbington? I I can't remember. It's a British uh, historian, actually, who back in the 80s came up with four points that, that described evangelicalism, and it's probably the best we can do. Uh, the first one was biblicism, which means that evangelicals believe that the Bible is the authoritative word of God, understood literally, uh, and so they're going to the Bible as a source. There's conversionism, which means that they are centered on a conversion experience, a born-again experience, and everyone needs to have this conversion experience. There's crucicentrism, which means that the cross is the center, and the atoning work of Jesus on the cross is what is the, the most important way, or the only way for us to be able to be reconnected with Father. And then finally, activism, that we need to be active. We need to go out and we need to make disciples. We need to convert other people. There's things that we need to be doing. So understood those four ways. Yeah, we're, we can be considered evangelical in the sense that we follow those things, but we follow them in a different way once again. And that's the problem, you know. No evangelical is going to look at us and say, you're evangelical, Mm -hmm. but I want to, everything I do is centered on what the Bible says. I want to be the most literal guy in the room when it comes to the Bible, but I'm going to understand it from this first century Jewish point of view, Mm -hmm. which is going to differ from the received way that we've gotten the Bible 
um, through Western tradition. And so it's, it's difficult. It's kind of squishy. Mm-hmm. You know? No, I suppose, no, technically we're not evangelicals in any way that they would recognize. And yet I still want to follow those things. And yet that also sounds like that could be a good thing because that is what creates a degree of pressure in some of the churches today. If you feel like you have this big to-do list in order to be evangelical, you have to do all these things. I, I don't know about any of you, but I went through, as an introvert, one six-month witnessing class, you know, how to witness to others. And it was, it was almost devastating to me because that, that isn't how I share the good news, the way that I was mm-hmm. being taught. So I think what I'm hearing you say is that some of these, these terms that we've been given um, it, and we associate with being Christian and a good Christian if we follow them don't necessarily line up because this isn't the only way. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, let's say, okay, Bible. Yes, we focus on the Bible. Everything that you'll hear from here has a source in Scripture. But we're going to be looking at it from this first century Hebrew point of view, which is going to change the meaning as opposed to what most conservative Christians would, would think of. Conversionism. Yes, we absolutely believe in, in a conversion experience. We absolutely believe in a direct experience of God's presence that's going to change us. Now, we may not understand it in the same biblical way. It may not make us speak in tongues or it may not make us do certain things that other Christians would see as a, a necessary result or a manifestation of that conversion. But the conversion, the, the direct connection is, is essential. Without which, you know, how are we ever going to know the Father's love? How are we ever going to have a handle on his nature? And in terms of crucicentrism, yes, the cross is central to us. But the cross is central to us as the ultimate expression of God's love, withholding nothing, and not a mechanism by which we somehow earn back God's approval that was lost to us. We believe that God's approval was never lost to us Mm -hmm. because that's what Jesus tells us in terms of the good news. And then in terms of activism, going out and trying to convert people, we believe, yes, you do that, but you do that the way St. Francis did it. Mm. You know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you preach the gospel continuously you use words where necessary. In other words, we just live this thing. Mm-hmm. It's attraction, not promotion, if you want to take a page out of AA. So there's a different way. We're not trying to get people to say the sinner's prayer. We're not trying to get people to sign on the dotted line. We're trying to show them, with a changed life, uh, an invitation to a new way of living mm-hmm. that is going to change everything. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Emerging church, you know. Nobody knows really what that means. And yes, it's thrown around by a pejor- pejoratively. So basically, you know, evangelicals or conservative Christians would, anyone who's not them, who's pushing the envelope in other directions, to them it was emerging church. What do emergent, quote-unquote, leaders call, think of themselves? They understand that the church now, in the 20th and 21st century, is in, some, is in transformation. You know, our newest gener, our youngest generations, the millennials, they aren't buying the old modern church understanding, and and so the church is changing and emerging into something else that we really don't know what that's going to be. We just know that it's in a state of flux and moving. And emergent leaders are ones who are then pushing the envelope and saying, okay. Can we question these things? Do we have permission to question these things? And is there another way to understand this reality of God's presence, this reality of, of Jesus' life and continued life in our lives uh, that, that 
changes the calculus in such a way that we really do live and look more like Jesus mm-hmm. and, and, you know, and moving in all these other directions and basically saying there are no sacred cows. We're going to look at everything and we're going to, we're going to ask those questions. So in that sense, I guess you could say we're emergent because mm-hmm. we realize that we're kind of on that leading edge. We're a part of that push to whatever Christianity is going to become in the next few generations. And of course, the old guard is, is hanging on tooth and nail to the old understanding. And just like the Israelites going through the wilderness for 40 years, that generation had to die off before the next generation can take the land. It's probably going to be like that. It'll be in the next generation or two or three where Christianity is manifested in whatever it becomes. But what I see happening and, and what I want to be a part of is a return, a full circle return to that first century understanding of what Jesus was all about and see that be primary in our lives as modern Westerners rather than the shift that has taken place historically. Mm, mm, I love it. Um, One of the questions was why no altar calls, but I think you may have covered that because, again, that's a you're asking them to act on an impulse as opposed to leading them by attracting them to a way of life. Can you expand on that? Sure. And not just on impulse, but (laughs) Marcus Borg has a great line where he says, if we are saved by saying the sinner's prayer, then basically it's salvation by syllables. Mm -hmm. And so we have sort of gotten to the point where we have stadiums full of people and, and they're asked to go down to the to the, the floor of the playing field and they're sent through the sinner's prayer and then they'll announce on the radio that you know 20,000 people um, were saved and, and converted to the Lord. Well, 20,000 people went down to the floor of the stadium and said some words. Are they really converted? Is there anything there that they're prepared to live mm-hmm. you know, for the rest of their lives? We, we are, it's not that we're at all opposed to the sacraments. And I consider an altar call like a sacrament. Baptism is a sacrament. But we understand that those are outward expressions of an inward transformation. Without the inward transformation, the outward expression is meaningless. And so we don't want to promote something that is meaningless. We want really to have people prepared and to move through. And so what we're finding is that people who are interested that actually approach us and and want to be counseled and they want to connect and they start asking questions and we go have coffee and we do these things, that out of that kind of connection and that relationship that builds Mm -hmm. comes that, that moment of conversion, which may be private and may not be said in front of the church. So once again, we don't want to put the cart before the horse and just get a bunch of people to say something. We want to grow them into relationship and, and, and by showing them what relationship looks like and then see what comes of that mm-hmm. so that it's a little bit more organic. Mm, beautiful. But we can do a little bit of both. I mean, it's, you know. And, You're and flexible. Yeah. <laughs> and as, you know, Marion has often said, you know, why don't we just ask people to, to come talk to us if they want to? And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. And Frank, maybe you can put that on your to-do list or in the announcements where, where it's like, yeah, if, if any of you want to talk to us, find out what's going on, come up and talk to us and start that process that could end in and, and culminate in the same kind of, of a conversion experience or even a prayer that is spoken that expresses what is really changing in their lives. Good, good, neat. Um, 
this question has been answered already um, I, because we've talked to the to the group about it, but was it strictly a recovery church? And we know now that we are a church with a recovery ministry. Is that correct? Yes, yeah. but also we truly believe that everybody is recovering from something. Yes. Okay. So even though you were surrounded by people in in substance abuse recovery and you weren't, but you're still recovering from something. Absolutely. You know. And when I started working in in recovery 15 years ago, um, that's the, that's the the thing that just jumped out at me. Uh, besides the fact that I loved working in the recovery community because people were at the precipice. There's that line in the movie that says, at the precipice we change. You know, that's where change is possible, at the edge, at the precipice, when you've run completely out of yourself. And, and what are you going to do? You're going to double down and go back to what you've been doing that got you here? Or are you finally going to take that leap, finally going to take the quantum leap into something different? And so I love that. But what I started to realize is that I was no different from these people, even though I didn't have a substance abuse background. My process addiction was functioning exactly the same. Overwork and obsessive compulsive this and compulsive that. And everyone who has unfinished business in their life, you know, is papering it over, is, is medicating themselves some way, some way, shape or form to get through another 24 hours, you know pushing someone else's head down so you can, like a drowning man, to get another breath of air. Uh, that's what we do. And what I further realized is that the way through all of that was the same for everybody, regardless of their drug of choice. And that's just Jesus' way. Understood the way we're talking about. To make it concrete, practical, to give it teeth and traction that can actually get you through to another way of, of living and choosing and, and relating. And so, yeah, so we're, we're a recovery church in that broad sense, mm-hmm. you know, so that everyone realizes that, yeah, there's work to be done here. And that when we talk about Jesus' message or we talk about Scripture or we talk about anything theological, they're always drawing a bright line between that concept, that, that abstract or intellectual concept, and something that you can do right here, right now, today, as you hit the parking lot, as you drive home, if you can't make that one-to-one correspondence, then either take that thing and totally throw it out or put it on the shelf at least because what good is it doing you? Mm-hmm. If it doesn't have relevance for something that you can live right now that's going to take you into a new experiential place, then you know, we're sort of talking about how many angels dance on the head of a pin. You know, <laughs> it just doesn't matter right now. And we don't want to circle the airport. We always want to bring it in for a landing. Mm-hmm. So in that case, yes, we're a recovery church. Good, okay. Uh, you don't have any fill-in-the-blank inserts in the program. <laughs> How come? Yeah, I know. And, and this is one of the, even this, this set of thing we're doing right now, I, I don't ever want it to be a Bible answer man kind of concept here. You know, to, there's nothing wrong with outlines, and I put them on there sometimes. You know, I don't leave the blanks and have you filled things in. I know that supposed to be for audience participation and if you do things you're, you're getting you know, more involved in the group and everything but we never want to imply that our spirituality can be reduced to a formula that's the main key here we have made theology a kind of a how-to book you know nine steps to making a better souffle I don't know it can be anything but if, if we started looking at our spirituality like that we have completely defeated ourselves before we begin. And so my messages tend to be more of a journey. 
You know, I'll say something outrageous and make everyone uncomfortable, and then we'll kind of take the journey and explain it so that by the time we get around, maybe that, you know, it's not so crazy. But so it kind of doesn't follow that. that mm-hmm. How did you say it, Frank? The three points and a, a, and a story. Three points and a story kind of formula. It's not going to follow that. It's going to be a little bit more organic. But most importantly is we want to sp- keep reinforcing the message. This is an organic journey that you need to take. There is not going to be an easy one-two point. There is no way to answer certain questions in the way we understand questions and answers. They're not going to be intellectually based. They're not going to be logically from going from premise to conclusion. There, there's something else going on here that's much more mysterious, you know, m- much more mystical, if, to, to use that word. And so I tend to stay away from those things because they're sending a different sort of message. Um, but I sort of broke that last Sunday and... and put some headers and some things in there. Um, so it, it just kind of depends on what we're talking about. But generally speaking, yeah, it's not going to be there and for that reason. I almost feel like you're inviting us to think for ourselves so that you're not confining us to a fill-in-the-blank answer. I would be very worried if you all completely agreed with me all the time. Mm-hmm. There would be something wrong here. Mm-hmm. Either I was too authoritarian and browbeating you into it or you all aren't thinking. You know, There should be healthy debate. There should be healthy differences of opinion. And we should learn that the differences of opinion don't matter to relationship. They don't have to matter to relationship. I don't care if we see eye to eye. I care if we can stand shoulder to shoulder. Can we live and relate and work toward common goals despite the differences in the way that we understand things? Because we're always going to understand things differently. And nobody's theology can ever accurately describe the Godhead. How could it? It would be physically impossible to do so. So here we are fighting over the things that we can't know when the things that we can know are right in front of our face. So we do those things. And so, yes, you know, I I put these things out here and um, I do the best I can and I'm telling you what I'm convinced of, at least at the moment. You know, ask me in five years and and we'll see. But um, I'm convinced at the moment and I have sources and I can tell you where all this stuff came from. But you take what you need and you leave the rest. Mm -hmm. And that's up to you. This is your journey. I and nobody else can take it for you. Jesus can't take it for you. God won't take it for you. It's your journey. You have to accept the call. You have to move and take the initiative and do everything. What we're here to do is to open up new vistas, maybe give you some things that you hadn't considered before, and most importantly, to give you the permission to go into error give you permission to go down blind alleys and have to double back and come around and give you permission to experiment and give you permission to question the things that you thought were bedrock and see if they are. Because maybe they are. Maybe nothing needs to change in your belief system. But how will you know until you pick up every rock and pry open the veneer and look under the hood? So that's what we're here to encourage and to take this journey all together. And for me, that's a big exhale. That's great. So how would we, how would we, and actually that you answered the next question, so I'm skipping over it. That's why I'm no longer feeling anxious, because you're giving me permission to do these things. Um, so how do we explain this church? If somebody says, explain the church you go to. You've just given us a lot of hints by what you just said, but what would your one, two, three sentence answer to that be? We are a church that is after the effect of God's love. 
if there is no effect, if there's no change in the way that we love and relate, then, then how can we say that we have been infused, converted, you know, changed by God? You know, so we're, we're, we're not so much chasing the cause, all the theological understanding. We're chasing the effect. You know, and I, I don't know, maybe that's too esoteric to, to try to tell someone. Um, maybe we tell them that, that we are we're following Jesus as first century Jews would have followed him to the best of our ability, you know, which makes us very now centered, you know, very present centered, um, focusing on what we can do right here and right now in our families and our relationships rather than focusing you know, on heaven or theology or anywhere else. Uh, we're looking for the common ground between all of us rather than the points of differentiation. That's not a, a simple answer. But you know, it's not a simple question. Yeah. That, that's, that's the thing. And I think for, you know, we're going to be 10 years on the 20th of next month uh, old. And this question has bedeviled us. It's always so difficult for us to describe in that elevator speech, that one or two sentences, what is the difference? And it seems like every time I answer the question, there's another facet that I feel is the most important thing to highlight. But um, I suppose, you know, you can say that the most important thing is following Jesus as a first century Jew and practicing a contemplative life that is focused on the experience of God's presence Mm -hmm. rather than understanding an experience of it. And then we say, come visit the effect and just sit here and soak in it. Because I think that's why a lot of us are here as we came and we liked what we heard and we stayed. So (laughs) that's good. That's good. Well, thank you for answering my questions. And I think I'd like to go on to other people's oh, questions no. right now. Oh, no. No, it's going to get hard. Can we do that? Okay. And we got some real good ones. And the first one that came in actually a month ago, I'm not necessarily going in order of the way they came in, but this is a good one. Um, I know God loves me. How do I know he likes me? <laughs> I know God loves me. How do I know he likes me? <sighs> the difference between loving and liking. What's the difference between loving and liking? You know, loving, especially for thinking of, of agape type love that we've heard so much about, implies a choice. You know, this is a, a conscious choice we make to love. And liking implies an emotional element to it. You know, there's a feeling of affection. There's, there's maybe a playfulness. There is a, a, a real warm connection that maybe love doesn't necessarily take us. If love is understood as a decision that we've, we've beaten that into us so much, is that a decision that we're really enjoying? Or is that a decision that we are dedicated to? And, or maybe in, in obeying in a certain sense. But liking implies something different. Liking implies really taking delight in another person, enjoying their presence, you know, and really feeling affectionate toward them. And how are we going to know if God feels all those things, if God looks at us that way, as opposed to just deciding to love us? And you know, the only thing we can ever do when we're talking about God, the Father, and his nature, is look at Jesus. You know, Jesus is one with the Father. Everything that Jesus does and every way that he relates is exactly the way the Father would do it. That's what he's telling us. That is the genius of the New Testament, and that is why we follow Jesus. And so we look at Jesus. 
Now, unfortunately, the Bible in the New Testament doesn't give us a lot of, of those kinds of looks at Jesus. They never, the, the Bible never says Jesus laughed. It says he wept a couple of times, but it never says he laughed. But there's these little clues that, that if we're really paying attention, that, that we can start to glean that Jesus has a different kind of personality. And the one that's clearest to me is the way that children reacted to Jesus and the way Jesus reacted to children. Jesus was a kid magnet. You know, when he walked into a town, the kids just glommed onto him to the point that his handlers, his disciples, were trying to shoo them away. And Jesus would never let him do that. He said, no, let the children come. And we have to understand that he would... If, if a kid likes an adult, okay, what kind of adult is that? It's the kind of adult that acts like a kid. You know, Kids can instinctively understand when someone is approachable, when someone is friendly, when someone is going to be able to enter their world and be a part of them. If the children knew that about Jesus, then he wasn't you know, a stick in the mud. He wasn't one of these you know, gruff authoritarian types. He was the kind of person that was inviting this in. And I imagine him just giving piggyback rides and letting them pull his beard and, and they're squealing and he's laughing with them and they're playing and doing all this undignified stuff because that's what kids gravitate toward. Any of you who have raised kids, any of you who know kids, you know this. You know? And any of you who know someone like, like Dave, our drummer, you know, Big Dave, kids love him because he's a kid himself. And so seeing Jesus connect with children that way, seeing Jesus love a good party, his first miracle was changing water into wine. He got called a drunkard and a glutton by those stick-in-the-mud authoritarian types because he was laughing and yucking it up with his friends. You know, there's little clues like that that show us that Jesus not only loved his friends and whoever was in his path, but he really liked them. He took delight in them and he enjoyed them. And our Father does too. How do we know, particularly, that, that God likes us? The only way we're going to know it is when we start liking the people that are around us mm. and we find that same delight and that same connection with them. And in that moment of just throwing our head back and laughing or giving a piggyback ride to a squealing kid and all of that other stuff just falls away. We don't have to think about it anymore. We don't have to prove it scripturally anymore. We just know that we know that we know that this is the bottom line intrinsic nature of things. This liking, this pure delight. And then we realize that in Aramaic, Sebyana, Will, the word that's translated as will, God's will, means delight, pleasure, desire, deepest purpose. And so God's will is full of delight and desire. Mm -hmm. But until we experience it ourselves, we won't know. Mm -hmm. We have to experience it. And we have to, that means we have to graduate ourselves from the authoritarian King James English stick-in-the-mud type of Christian who is always looking at things through the lens of the law and is this right or is this wrong, is this righteous or is this sinful and, and all you know, the things that we do. We have to break through that ourselves, move to the other side where we can just take delight in our moments and then we understand that's who our Father is. That's at the basis of all of this. But it has to be experiential. We have to experience it ourselves if we're really going to know it. Great, great answer. Because I was thinking in my humanness, I can even recall times in parenting. You brought up parenting where I would say to my kids, 
I love you with all my heart, but I don't like you very much right now. Go to your room. <laughs> because it's, it's so easy in our humanness to, to draw that line between the two. So giving us that picture of Jesus with the kids is just such a beautiful, beautiful picture to take home. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Next one. Please explain the different kinds of love. All of them. Ooh, all of them. <laughs> Not just a few, all of them. All right. Well, in Greek, there are four words for love that, that were given, uh, that are used in the New Testament. And each one of them has a little bit different shift in terms of the type of relationship. So there's phileo, which means a, a type of brotherly love, Philadelphia, you know, the city of brotherly love. So this is the type of, of love that a friend would have for a friend, and it's marked by affection and devotion. There's stergos, which is a familial love. It's a type of love that a parent, especially a mother, would have for a child. And so it's um, characterized by a sense of, of dedication and, and a cherishing and a protective kind of quality. And then there is... Eros, which is passionate, you know, physical love, and it's marked by that kind of passion between a man and a woman. And then finally there's agape, which is a spiritual love. It's a love that transcends all of the others, and it's kind of devoid of any particular emotion, um, but it's the deep love that undergirds everything. So those are four different types of love, and they're used you know, throughout the New Testament appropriately. Jesus uses two different words for love in Aramaic. And these, to me, were really instructive. Uh, the word rahem, which, which means love, is the kind of love, again, that a mother would have for a child. It, it starts from someplace deep inside, like a, like a spring or a well, and just gushes forward. It's effortless. It just flows out of you. And then there's hab. Hab literally means a kindling for fire. And so, or it can mean a germinating seed. It can have both meanings. And then what in the world does that have to do with love? Well, if you think about it, if you're starting with kindling to, to build a fire, you have all these little dry twigs and things, and you arrange them just so, and you spark it, and you blow on it, and you coax it into a flame, and then you slowly feed it until it becomes this roaring fire. Or you think of a dry husk of a seed, and you put it in the ground, and you water it, and then a, a plant breaks through. And when Jesus uses these words, when he talks about loving your neighbor, he uses rahem. When he talks about loving your enemy, he uses hab. And that illustrates the point that love is going to be experienced difficult, differently. When we are trying to love our neighbor, someone that we already are connected with, that we see as family, that just flows, that's natural, that's easy. That's why he says, if you just love those who love you, what have you really done? I mean, that's just an easy reciprocal flowing. He says, but when you have loved your enemy, something different has happened. Now you've taken all these dead, dry things and you've worked through this feeling either of disgust or dislike or even enmity or just the fact that you just don't get these people. Who the heck are they? You know? But you've slowly built that fire. You've fanned it. You've protected it. You've slowly planted the seed and tended it until it becomes something that is completely different. And so the word itself illustrates the process through. You know? So we take all of those things together. And really all those words, though, are looking at the process of the relationship or the emotional content of the relationship or the role that we play in those different types of love. 
But what is love really, if we break it down? Is love the feeling of any of those Greek words? Is love the behavior of the Aramaic words? And I think Thomas Merton said it best. He said that love, when you really break it down, is not the feeling or the behavior. Love is actually identification with the beloved. It's when you see the other as an extension of yourself or a part of yourself, that the line blurs between where you end and they begin. And so literally anything that you do for the other, you're doing for yourself and vice versa. So we all become kind of walking, talking golden rules, you know, doing to others as they would, you would have them do to you. But when you think about what happens when we first identify with another person, when we see them as another human being, see them as us, even through cultural differences, even through doctrinal differences. I mean, that whole idea of loving the enemy. They're not of my tribe. I don't get them. They smell funny. They, they eat weird food. Whatever it happens to be that keeps us at arm's length from them. But if we then see them still as a human being who deserves everything that I deserve, now the behavior flows out of that that is loving. And you keep flowing that behavior long enough and guess what happens? The feelings of affections come. And so it comes from that inner source, you know, whether we have to work on it or whatever, but the behavior flows out of that and the feelings of affection flow out of the behavior. And so love comprises, I suppose, all those things, but it starts with identification. That's why Jesus' prayer for us at John 17 is always that we would be one. All of us would be one, as he and the Father are one, which is another way of saying that we would all love each other as he and the Father love each other, because it starts with oneness, it starts with identification, without which there cannot be behavior that is actually loving. Even behavior that is good to each other, if it doesn't start from that that sense of oneness and connection, then it has an ulterior motive. It's, It's something that is not going to really take us to the deepest connection with each other. So those are all the the love words that are used in the New Testament, but really trying to dig down to what love really is, that oneness, that connection from which all these things flow in in, in different, manifested in different ways in in different relationships in our lives. Great. I've got one question about something you said there, though. What do you think, what keeps us or prevents us from being in that position to identify with another that, that holds us back? Fear. I mean, it always comes down to fear. Um, what is it that, that I am not comfortable with? How is that going to affect me? If I bring this into my life, what is this going to do? What is this going to change? You know, if I allow myself to feel this deeply, to be this vulnerable, you know, then I'm, how hurt am I going to get? Mm-hmm. Um, all those fears are, are, are in play. You know, it's so much easier to just classify someone as outside of the the pale, outside of the boundary of of my family or my tribe or my whatever, my my political party. And so I don't need to consider Mm. you. It's it's always been fascinating to me how the, the Nazi guards could gas Jewish infants and children all day long and then go home and tuck their kids in at night. How do you do that? I mean, there, there's, there are two children, you know, and, and you can kill one and, and, and toss it into a pit, and this other one you love and cherish. Mm-hmm. Well, this one you don't see as, as fully human. This one you don't see, as, and so you don't have to think about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we can do that. We can, this one counts and this one doesn't, because to open ourselves up to that, that's frightening. 
You know, what's that going to require of me? How's this going to change my life? How's it going to change my agenda? How's it going to change what I think I need in order to survive? I mean, it's, it always comes down to fear. That's why perfect love casts out the fear. Because once we get to the understanding that everybody is connected, everybody's on the same plane, that, that God's love is completely degree-less, it, it, it never varies among any of us, no matter who we are or what we've done, you know, that God's love really is unjust. It deliberately unbalances the scales of justice in favor of the beloved. If we start to come to terms with that, it calls into question everything that we think we know. It calls into question our own sense of fairness. Mm-hmm. And, and that is sometimes just a little too scary. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. It's good. Okay. Um, do you think that there will be a chance for salvation after death? Will God ever turn his back on us? Will we ever run out of time? Short of blasphemy, will the gates of heaven ever be closed to us? <laughs> Loaded question. Loaded question. Well, I think you can tell from my rant that I just went through a second ago <laughs> that, no, I don't believe God will ever turn his back on us. Um, does that mean there is no hell? No, that doesn't mean there is no hell. Because we have a choice to make here. What I believe about God's love and its implication is, is that God has already made his choice about us. I don't know if we're going to get to the question about judgment and judgment day, but God has already made his choice. He made it before he created any of this, and certainly before he created each one of us. He already chose us. He already decided that he was going to withhold nothing from us and that he was going to love us with this complete oneness, to see us as one with him. So that choice has already been made. And we can't alter it. It's, it's who he is. It's not what he does. When the scriptures say that God is love, we need to take that literally into the bank. It means that God's love is a noun. You know, it, it, it's, it's not primarily a verb. It's not just what he does or doesn't do, like putting on a coat or taking it off. He, he just is this thing. And so every time we approach God, that's what we get. And so it's, it's a whole different way of looking at it. This idea that we are going to be judged acceptable or not acceptable to God based on a snapshot taken at the moment of our death is, is such an arbitrary way of looking at this love. If the love of God is what Jesus says it is, that he calls good news, then there will never be a time that God would give up on us. There would never be a time when he throws us into a cell, locks it, and then throws away the key, where there would be never any recourse back. I just don't believe that. But I do believe that there are those of us, because of our fear, that would stand in the shade rather than come out into the sunshine of, of God's love. God is always radiating like the sun in every possible direction at full intensity all the time. But you can go stand in the shade if you want to. You know, even if you desperately want that love, but you don't have a chutzpah or what it takes to, to take the, the measures to find what it means to be one with that love, that's our choice. So are there ways that this moves past death? You know, I honestly can't answer that question. I don't know how the mechanics of this thing work. I got a chance to talk to Thomas Keating one time, you know, a a monk and and famous author, and answering this question himself, he says, you know, I have a lot of hope that things happen in the dying process because I don't know when they would happen any other time. 
In other words, there's something that happens, you know, even if it's before death, in those last few nanoseconds before the lights go completely out, where, you know, maybe we live some kind of lifetime in, in some sort of time bubble dimension thing where, where we actually can make these choices and, and understand what's going on and step back out into the light. Or, as the scripture says, that those of us who have really come forward in this life are going to rule and reign with God in the next life, well, if that's true, light, logical extension, who are we ruling and reigning over? There must be somebody who needs a helping hand, who still needs a hand at the small of their back to be guided through. And motion is implied in, in, in the afterlife. We're going to be moving from here to there and doing things. If all that is happening, then it seems to me that learning is still taking place, mm-hmm. that change is still taking place. If God is infinite, then he always has the ability to surprise us you know, any time in eternity, you know, we're always free falling into the center of an infinite God. If all of that's possible, then it sounds like there's still things that we can learn and the opportunity to turn to God is always open. I can't, this is all speculation. I love, I love what uh, C.S. Lewis said. He said, guesses, guesses, you know, if these things aren't true, then something better will be, you know. But, the only thing and the only reason that I even go down this trail is, again, to protect the notion of the Father's love. That is paramount. As soon as we let go of that stake in the ground that we put at the point of the Father's love, all bets are off. You know, And law can reign supreme, but not God's love. And now we're back on the hamster wheel trying to prove ourselves. We're back living in fear, afraid of punishment, afraid of not being good enough, afraid of being left out in the dark. And that is antithetical to everything that Jesus was telling us. God will never leave or forsake us. Scripture tells us that. He will never turn his back on us. How the idea started that that only goes up to a point and then no more, to me, is just denying the actual nature of God. Can I prove it? Nope. That's up to you to decide. You know, Pick your poison. Become convinced of what you're convinced of. But for me, that's the way I tend to look at it. Thank you. Wow, okay, this one. Uh oh. And another one for you. Uh, I know the question is ultimately beyond our pay grade, but what are your thoughts about Judas and his ultimate salvation? Although he freely made many choices that led to Christ's betrayal and death, how much of a role did divine destiny play in his fulfilling God's plan? Even with that, could his regret remorse over what he had done ultimately won redemption for him if Christ really is love? Which is a follow-up, sounds like, to the last question. Judas. Always got to come down to Judas. If there was anything in divine destiny that coerced Judas to do what he did and then ultimately to be damned for it, um, then God's love is also negated. God's love is not what Jesus said it was. So I I would flatly reject that notion that Judas had no choice. If Judas has no choice, then he's a victim. A victim is not responsible for anything that they do. I mean, that's just the definition of a victim, right? And so as soon as we're not victims, that's why we hang on to our victimhood, by the way, because we like not being responsible for anything. And so we'll hang on to our misery you know, that's attached to our victimhood just so we don't have to be responsible personally for the things that we do. Um, so G- Judas was absolutely responsible and had the, cho- had the choice for everything that he did. 
we kind of talked about this um, last last week. I think it was last week when we were talking about midrash and we were talking about you know looking at the at the scriptures in a deeper way. When we look at just the surface you know, view of Judas, he looks like a very greedy person, and that's the way that he's been portrayed. That he sold Jesus out for thirty pieces of silver, and he was angry at Mary because she you know broke this expensive jar of perfume that he could have um, you know, used to give to the poor. And the scripture even says, yeah, but he was really focused on money. Um, it seems to me that you know so much speculation has has come out on Judas. Trying to understand this character, he's one of the most fascinating characters in the New Testament, hands down. Um, what was his motivation? What was he trying to do? You know, the the big question about Jesus for so many people was: Was he the Messiah? Was he the Anointed One, this Messiah, which they understood as a political and and a and a sovereign ruler who was going to militarily come through a warrior that was going to come through and throw out the Roman uh, occupation and reestablish a sovereign nation uh, of of Israel. And so they were all looking to see if he was the one. By the time you get out to around the 30s in, in the first century, this had risen to a fever pitch. The Romans had been occupying um, Judea for 70 years or so, something like that. And the zealots had come on the scene and they were the guerrillas, the terrorists of their day, just trying to, in any way they could, destabilize the Roman occupation and to foment a war that would eventually throw them out. And they were looking for this leader, this charismatic, anointed leader, warrior, king, who was going to lead this whole thing. And um, Judas may have been, and this is one of the, uh, the theories, may have been a zealot who was looking for Jesus to be that leader and may be actually thought that by pushing him out in this way that he was s- triggering the events, forcing Jesus' hand to finally accept the mantle of political power and to do what he needed to do um, rather than just seeing this as, as greed. And so that he really believed in Jesus. He was following Jesus. He wanted Jesus, but he looked at Jesus institutionally. He looked at Jesus as part of a movement and part of his national you know, agenda rather than just seeing him as an individual and seeing him for what Jesus really was, which is what Mary saw so beautifully in, in her connection with him emotionally and in every other way. So his betrayal, it, it could have been with the best of intentions, trying to bring Jesus into the fullness of what he believed Jesus was supposed to be. But regardless of what it was, he missed the whole point But when you think about it, he didn't do anything really that much worse than what Peter did. Peter denied him vehemently with with complete, you know, swearing the way that Jews swore on on the temple or the horns of the temple or the gold of the... Swearing that he did not know this man. Was Judas' sin really that much worse than Peter's? Well, you could argue, you know, Peter didn't get him killed, but... um, but really the two things have, have a, an equivalence. And yet Peter was able to turn right around with his remorse and come back into the fold. And Judas was driven out into despair. Okay, so then he commits suicide. Well, is that the coup de grace then? Is now <laughs> he's, he's committed suicide, so he's going to hell? Well, that's another theological question that we have to a- answer. Do suicides always go to hell? Are suicides you know, damned automatically because they have committed this this heinous sin. Once again, God's love would suggest otherwise. 
God's love would say, you know, if we can understand that someone who takes their own life, by definition, is not in their right mind, that maybe they don't really want to die, they don't want to negate God's action in their life, they just want the hurting to stop. You know, if they just ran out of runway before they could get where they were trying to get all their lives and just could never find the way, or in Judas's case, his, his remorse just covered over on him and he couldn't see another way out, does God not have the ability to understand that, to have compassion, to forgive, even if we can? See, these are the things that, that never made any common sense to me, and not as a Catholic growing up where that doctrine is, is, is very well entrenched. And so I don't see anything that Judas did that's unforgivable. And in fact, Jesus said there was only one unforgivable sin, which was blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which again is a term that's kind of squishy. But to me, what that means is, is if the Holy Spirit is the agent by which we are drawn to the Father, if we deny that agent that draws us to the Father, then of course we're not going to be drawn to the Father because we are refusing the drawing that is freely there and is there for everyone. That's the only way. In other words, what Jesus is really saying, you know, is the only thing that will keep you from God's forgiveness is not wanting to be forgiven in the first place, that you're already as forgiven as you want to be. Is Judas in heaven right now? Is Judas with God? I don't know. But if he isn't, it's by his choice and not by God's choice. God loves Judas and likes Judas every bit as much as any one of us or anybody else who's ever set foot on this planet. And I think that's all I have to say about that. Mm. That was good. good. This is what I need my iPad for. Okay. Could you include some discussion on the 28th of this passage? It's from a Christian dating... Oh, okay. It's from a Christian dating workbook and class um, that my daughter's taking with a woman at her church. Some assumptions this makes... I find unsettling and, un- and laden with legalistic subtleness and questionable assumptions, and yet I understand the difficulties when a couple is very far apart on their spiritual journeys, especially if one partner is not on some seeking journey of their own. I would love to hear your comments on the Christian perspective of avoiding relationships when two people are, uh, quote-unquote, unevenly yoked. So let me pull this up. and read from the workbook. And I'm going to have to already apologize because it starts on a page in the middle of a sentence. So, uh, let's just start at this paragraph. Many think it is the very narrow-minded indeed to to discourage Christians from marrying outside of their faith. But there are strong reasons for this biblical rule. If your partner doesn't share your Christian faith, then he or she doesn't truly understand it as you do from the inside. And if Jesus is central to uh, excuse me, if Jesus is central to you, then that means that your partner doesn't truly understand you. He or she doesn't understand the mainspring of your life, the ground motive of all you do. As we observed in previous chapters, no one can perfectly know your spouse before you marry. But when two people marry who have the common faith in Christ, each one knows something significant about the other's fundamental motivations and views of life. If, however, you marry someone who doesn't share your most deeply held and core beliefs, then you will uh, repeatedly make decisions that your partner won't be able to fathom at all. 
that part of your life, and it is the most important part of your life, will forever be opaque and mysterious to your spouse. The essence of intimacy in marriage is that finally you have someone who will eventually come to understand you and accept you as you are. Your spouse should be someone you don't have to hide from or always be spinning, quote-unquote. It should be someone who, quote-unquote, gets you. But if the person is not a believer, he or she can't understand your very essence and heart. I'm glad you're answering this one, <laughs> and not me. Okay, so you all understand what, what, she, what she's asking, right? You know, should, should a believer marry a non-believer? Should a Christian marry a non-Christian? Because if, if they do, then they're unevenly yoked, and you should never do that. Um, now, there's a lot of wisdom, and it's just common sense that if you marry someone who's of a different faith, a different culture, um, you know, a, a, a radically different belief system, then it's going to be a difficult relationship. And especially when you start raising kids. You know, if, you, if you're, if you're comp- you know, in, in such different camps, it's going to be difficult to do that. There's, there's going to be all sorts of, of problems. You know, when it comes to your faith, if your faith is really important to you, if it really is the center of your life, the center of your gravity, and you can't share that with the person you're supposed to be closest to, that's going to be really difficult. You know, We see people coming to the effect alone all the time. Their spouse doesn't come. And, and this is an experience that they can't share with them. I think what made the person uncomfortable about the way this workbook was written, that it's relegating it again to a, just a bare religious fact if you are a professed Christian and this other person is not, then you're automatically unevenly yoked. And I would say that's not necessarily the case. I love that Victor, Victor Frankl, when he said that um, there are basically two races of men, you know, the decent and the indecent. That's it. Every other category or box that we put people into is arbitrary. You, know? you tell me you're a Christian? Okay. I don't really care to tell you the truth. Are you a decent Christian? That's what I want to know. Because if you're a decent person, then we can have a relationship. And we're not unevenly yoked. We can still connect. Even though, yeah, if I'm trying to marry this this decent person who thinks so differently and worships so differently or not at all, that's going to be difficult because I'm going to be doing a lot of things on my own. And so it's something to look at, but it's not something to make hard and fast rules over. You know? Any individual couple can overcome whatever difficulties that the odds say are going to make it difficult for them. They can overcome that. They can find a way. You know, a Jew and a Christian marrying together. How are they going to do that? You know, well, one worships on Saturday and worships on Sunday, so you can probably make that. You know, you will find a way if there is enough willingness there. If there is enough love and understanding and compassion and empathy there, you can make it work. But you just have to know it's going to be more difficult. The odds are more against you, but it can happen. But I think the underlying question is, what do we see as a follower of Jesus that would qualify or disqualify someone as being yoked evenly with me? And I think that's where we really need to take the look. Is it just because they signed on the dotted line of Christianity, because they go to a certain church, because they profess the same creed as me? Or is it because they're really living their lives with the kind of sense of oneness, compassion, and mercy, and love that Jesus did? 
seen everyone as worthy of being inside. When Jesus qualified his own followers, he said it's not anything except if you live the way I live, if you follow my commandments, that's the way it's translated. But if you live the way I live and love the way I love, then you're my followers. Not because you say you are, not because you go to this particular synagogue or church, and not because you signed on this particular bottom line, because you live this way. That is it. That's what makes you my followers. And then you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And then he said, they will know you're my followers by your love. That was his criteria. Again, it's a way of living life and not a way of thinking about life or faith or theology or love that makes us evenly or unevenly yoked. And so I think as long as we're thinking along that way, along those lines, there's really something to look at there. And just realize, if you're trying to put a marriage together, that's a difficult thing. And you're trying to bring kids into the picture, that's a really difficult thing. And if you are really far apart culturally or in terms of your faith or otherwise, it's going to make it more difficult. But let's make sure that we're drawing the lines where they really need to be drawn. Mm -hmm. Very good. Okay, this is on God's nature. When people are going through great pain, such as loss of a loved one, upheaval of the loss of a job, financial ruin, we seek to find peace and balance and understanding of our situation. We want answers as to why things are going on, where to go next, and how could this happen to me. There's so many outside sources that come through to answer outside of the Bible, such as Buddhism, Hinduism, Taoism. When the sources come through, how do you sift through the words that sound so true into our Christian life and the belief systems without compromising our kingdom? That's related to the last question. Mm-hmm. You know, where do we draw the line in terms of truth? Is something only true if it comes through a Christian filter? Is it only true if it comes from the pages of the Christian Bible? Or is there truth that is mirrored outside? Now, I'm not a follower of Jesus for nothing. I'm a follower of Jesus because in Jesus, I see the complete fullness of everything that I need to know about God and God's nature. I don't need to go to any other faith tradition because everything is here. On the other hand, I've studied a lot of other faith traditions and I see a lot of truth there. But the truth that I see there is always said in Jesus' teaching as well. I like to bring um, other faith traditions and and sayings and and, um, teachings from other faith traditions into our discussion here. Because often what happens is that the, the teachings of Jesus um, have become so familiar that we don't see them anymore. They become so covered over with 2,000 years of Western tradition that we've lost the impact of, of what they are. And sometimes the same idea, the same truth, can be expressed from another faith tradition that just hits you, you know, across the face like a two-by-four in a way that Jesus' teaching would have done to his first followers when they first heard it. And we need to be hit across the face with a two-by-four in order to know that we're hearing something different and not just run it through the filter of what we think we already know. We have got to become people that are able to see truth from wherever it comes from rather than just from where we expect it to be. That was kind of the message from Easter Sunday. Why was everyone not able to see Jesus after he rose from the dead? Why did they keep looking for him among the dead instead of among the living? Because even though they had been so connected and indoctrinated with Jesus, they were still 
seeing only through their own filter and the other th- the, the truth w- was not coming through because it was coming from someplace completely outside of anything that they ever expected. When we really follow Jesus, when we are really willing to let go of all our preconceptions, let go of our biases, let go of our expectations, let go of who we think we are so that the, the truth can actually come through, that will simultaneously open us up to recognizing truth from whatever direction it comes and from whatever faith tradition it comes. That doesn't mean that, that we're going to go become Taoists and we're going to go become Hindus, but we recognize that you know, even a broken clock is right twice a day, right? <laughs> and we be, have to be able to see that truth coming from other places. And sometimes it can help us, especially in the scenario that, that the, the questioner is, is bringing up. When life really gets difficult... You know, and we're looking for something that makes sense, some way to, to, to have some meaning and purpose through these difficulties in life and to see that there's another side out there beyond all of this. And so our ability to pull from, from everything helps. But as far as I have studied, I have never found anything that I needed that wasn't already in the New Testament, that wasn't already in the red letters of Jesus' teaching. Everything I need is there. It's lovely and it's beautiful when I see it reflected from outside there. And it just shows that there is one God, there is one truth. Mm. And if we are seeing that truth, we're seeing God, mm-hmm. even if it comes from someplace else. You know? Jesus' followers come running to him and they say, you know, Master, there's people out there who are not of our tribe, they're not followers of you, but they're casting out demons in your name. Should we tell them to stop? And he says, no. You know, they're doing it. Let them go. Let them go. You focus on what's going on here. Mm. You know, it's, it's okay. They're, they're, truth is truth. Mm. Are we going to be the people who are going to take the blinders off and see it for what it is? That's a beautiful thing. But it doesn't mean that we are denying Jesus. It doesn't mean that we're denying our faith. It doesn't mean that we're moving away from our Christian roots and our tradition. It just means we're opening ourselves up to see you know, that God permeates everything. There is no place that God isn't. You know, he's here, he's now, he's everywhere. And if we're open to him, if we're becoming permeable and vulnerable, then we're going to apprehend him. And that is what's going to take us through life's difficulties. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to keep moving because we've got a lot and we're running late on time here. Um, I have a friend who lost a child in an auto accident. As a result, she's given up her faith, saying such a cruel God she would not accept. How do I help her to think along a different avenue to help her get back to believing? A further conversation with this person revealed that the accident happened 12 years ago. Wow. So this person has been living in kind of a self-imposed hell for 12 years, you know. But by the belief that, that God is responsible for the death of her child, um, it's heartbreaking, it, it goes right back to the oldest, probably the oldest question that human beings have, have asked themselves. And the question that Job asks himself in what is universally considered to be the oldest book in the Bible, the book of Job, and it's called theodicy. It's a, you know, it's a branch of, of philosophy that, that basically is dealing with um, justifying God. You know, uh, and it's also called the problem of evil. You know, if God is all-powerful and all-good, and yet evil, evil exists, 
All right? Well, you can choose any two, but you can't have all three. Because if God allows the evil to exist, then he's not all good. And if he can't fix it, then he's not all powerful. See how that logical conundrum goes? Um, so what do we do with that? What do we do with the problem of evil? God is supposed to be all good and all powerful, and yet look at these things that happen to us. And if God didn't cause it, but he allowed it, you know, he's still not off the hook, is he? He's still there. So how do we understand... I would say, the, the, the way the question is framed, how can I help my friend see God in a different way? How can I help my friend through? You know, I don't know if there is a way, logically and verbally, to do that. I mean, we can talk in here about where does evil come from? Well, from my point of view, evil comes from three sources. It comes from the consequences of my actions. It comes from the consequences of others who affect me. And it is what we unfortunately call acts of God, but really are just the way nature works, which are neither good nor bad, right? Plate tectonics being the way that they are, they make life on this planet possible. But it's bad if my house is on the fault line when the earthquake goes off. So I define these acts of nature or, or things that happen, whether it's weather, whether it's disease, whether it's whatever it happens to be, by whether it interrupts my agenda, whether it frustrates where I want to go, I'll call that bad. You know, otherwise I'll call it good. But it's really neither good nor bad. And, in the, and actually, in the long run, it's good because life is only possible because of the way that the physical universe and the world is set up. So, is God responsible for any of that stuff? And why did God set things up the way he set up? Now it calls into, into question, what is our purpose here? Is our purpose here only to experience good things? Is our purpose here only to experience light? Or what is going on? Why are we here in this particular scenario at all? This gets very existential and, and very philosophical. But if we're here to learn how to connect with each other, if we're here to learn how to become one in some way that, that this life needs to teach, then this life has to break us down and take us all the way to ground zero before we can see each other as one with us. Because if we're invested in anything at all, if we're clinging to anything at all, then we're going to see ourselves as different from and apart from the other. And so this shape of life of having to go down and descend before we can ascend is a motif that just occurs throughout. It's, it's on Jesus' lips every other passage in terms of having to make this descent. And so even the worst things that happen to us are really paths to more and more ability to connect, to understand what is really going on in life. And in the longest term, it's, it's good. It's taking us where we need to go. Tell that to a grieving mother, not on your life. Why would I say that to her? You know, all I'm going to be able to do with someone who's grieving over the loss of a child, which is the most you know, incredible loss that I can even imagine, would just to be to sit shiva with them, just to sit and quietly be part of the mourning with them. I'm not going to try to convince them of a thing. Unfortunately, for someone who's been this way for 12 years, now it's hardened into a way of looking at life, and that's a different thing. And maybe after 12 years, you can sit and say, you know, why do you hold God responsible? And maybe that's something that can be talked about. Maybe you can crack a little little bit of, a, of an opening there that she can see another there out there. Or maybe not. Maybe the best you can do is just love her and continue to be her friend and give her whatever oneness that you can give her by being there. 
But for all of us, it is important to consider this problem of evil. Because if in any way or shape or form we think God is doing this to us, that he's using the evil to instruct us or chastise us or, or correct us you know, or discipline us in any way, shape or form, when something as heinous as the loss of a child happens, how in the world are you going to go anywhere else except God is some sort of monster who would use the death of my child, would take my child in order to teach me something? I wouldn't do that to a dog. Why would God do that to me? So now we have to take our notion of God and turn it back around. And our notion of, of what it is that our whole purpose and, and journey here on earth is all about. I mean, this is where it just gets down to the deepest bedrock. You know? And it calls into question everything we think we know about who God is, who we are, why we're here, the relationship between the two. So to go through the exercise ourselves to try to come up with something that at least is a framework, a way that we can go forward, deal with, the, with life as it is, deal with the difficulties, and still hang on to the notion of God's love, that's something we need to do. But we've got to be very careful <laughs> about how we think that our logic and our answers mm-hmm. are going to be able to help someone who's in the midst of their grief, because most likely all it's going to do is just explode and destroy the relationship and mm-hmm. go in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. So it's a... Uh, mm. We do need a philosophy of life. We need, do need a, to, to have principles that guide us. But we've got to be careful about how we use them with other people. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. The most important thing is just to be there for each other. Yeah. Not to convince them of anything. Tough question. Okay. Thank you. Um, what are you thinking, Dave? We've got 8.35. I've still got a stack here, but <laughs> I let me ask you guys this. Are there questions out there? Would you like us to keep going, or would you like me to open it up? Are there burning things going on that you want to ask, Dave? Because we're stopping at 9 o'clock. Right, so we've got 25 minutes. Okay. 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 We'll maybe maybe let's do this. It, we can continue with these questions, but if you got a burning desire, just raise your hand. Yeah. And we'll Tina will call on you because yeah. Tina's in charge if tonight. If I can see you. Yeah. Okay, next one. What does God bring to the relationship between me and him? If prayer is more about changing me than changing the situation, then what is his role in my life? Oh, no. <laughs> Prayer, you know, prayer stumped me for the longest time. I had no idea what prayer was. I just couldn't figure it out, um, how prayer worked, especially when you got into intercessory prayer. I mean, how does that work? You know, it's almost like, well, if we get more people together on a prayer chain, then God can hear us better because there's more people shouting it. Um, I, I couldn't figure that one out. I couldn't figure out how I could pray for somebody else who's remote from me and, and how all that. I mean, I was just so dumbfounded by the whole thing. I had no idea. I remember, and, and I wrote this in one of my journal entries, there was a moment when I just saw a flyer for a missing girl and um, her parents lived on the East Coast and somehow this flyer got all the way out to George's Mexican restaurant there. I was going in to get a burrito and I was just reading this and, and it just took me into their shoes to imagine this family losing a girl, not knowing where she was, which to me is just the worst. You know, e- even if I know that my child is dead, it's better than just not knowing where they are. They're just out there someplace. Making these flyers and, and just sending them 
everywhere in the nation that they could think of where people would be. Because I looked in the back on the glass on the inside of the door and it was just a, a, a printed label. They were just blanketing the nation with these, with these flyers and asking restaurants and anybody to put... Imagine their mindset. Imagine what they were going through. I couldn't get it out of my mind. And I went in and got my burrito and ate lunch. And as I was coming back out, I saw the flyer again. And as I was crossing the parking lot going to my car, this involuntary prayer just came out. And I was just like, Father, my God, just help these parents, help this family. Just, you know, whatever you can do to let them know that you're there and that, that life can be good again somehow, some way. And then all of a sudden I realized what intercessory prayer was all about. It was about this deep connection, this, this, this feeling of oneness, how, how everybody is glued together, no matter how far apart we are, by the virtue of us simply being human, that we can connect on this sort of mystical level in a way. And the prayer itself, the words itself, I don't know what that meant. What meant to me that was important was just that intense feeling of oneness with maybe it was even just the human condition with humanity as a whole with with this family that I was that I was grieving with that they had no idea what's going on you know I don't know how this works what does that say about God's relationship you know was I expecting God because of my heartfelt prayer to imbue them with something to to you know it wasn't like that it wasn't that I was telling God what to do and expecting him to do it. It wasn't like I expected God to fix things so much. And I think that's so much of what prayer has become. It's become our way of, of kind of coercing or manipulating or influencing God in some way to do the things that we really want him to do to change our circumstances. But I'll tell you what, that prayer changed me. I understood prayer in a different way. I approached it in a different way. And it became um, a richer part of my life because of, of that. And I suppose I had to work up to it to, to that point. What does it say about the dynamics of, of God's relationship with us? You know, I think that the Trinity helps us in, in, that, in that way of understanding, you know, God as Father, Son, and Spirit. You know, each one of them in sort of this blurred motion, but, but as creator, as, as, as friend, and... and contact and as as spirit that drives you know there is that motion through our lives that is constant and it's always there and and we can move with it god is always there to infuse to enable to embolden to um, enliven for me that's god's dynamic and relationship in my life he fills me with something that allows me to deal with my circumstances as I find them, not to, to be the, the vending machine in the sky that gives me what I want or changes my circumstances. But that doesn't mean that he's any less present to me. Yeah. I, I rarely play, pray for God to, to do things. You know? Even when it seems like this place is not going to be able to pay its bills next month, you know, I really don't find myself praying for God to give us the cash. You know? I, I just continue to show up and to realize that God is here and if this place does have to close its doors God will still be just as here and there'll be some other way of expressing it that we're in what we're doing now it's it's a different kind of understanding that I, I've come to and 
For me, it gives me a lot of peace. I know for other people, it would seem like it makes God colder and remote if he's not involved in every little thing. But to me, it just allows me to just flow with God in a way that I couldn't do before because I was always looking at God through unmet expectations. Always looking at God through some outcome that was still in doubt that I needed. And, and now it's just like, well, none of that really matters. All that matters is just here now and being a part of that circle dance, a part of that, that motion and feeling the connection, even in the most heinous of circumstances with the people around us. Mm-hmm. You know, I hope I never get to the point where I can't feel what I felt walking out of George's Mexican restaurant in Huntington Beach of, of that connection, even though it was painful to feel what I was feeling. It brings tears to my eyes right now thinking about it. You know, but that's it. I think... Those tears, that, that, that ability to mourn, that is the dynamic that God has that, that connects us all and allows us to feel deeply and to become vulnerable again and put down the shield and the armor and just feel what we feel and let that be okay. I, I think it's like that. And I don't know if, if that's a satisfying answer or not, but it's, mm-hmm. I think, the best I can do right now. Mm, I like that. Thank you. Okay, um, switching gears a little bit here. What is Jewish? A nationality <laughs> or a religion? Uh, finally, an easy one. <laughs> it's both. <laughs> it's both. You know, and it, it's it, um, Jewishness is kind of unique that way because it is both. It's a nationality and it's a religion. And I think the the longer uh, the longer answer is, you know, can you be um, can you be Jewish and not practice Judaism? Can you be Jewish and practice another faith? And yeah, the answer is sure. You can be Jewish by ethnicity, by bloodline, you know, but you're not necessarily Jewish in terms of the way you practice your faith. You know, are there, um, can Gentiles be Jewish? Yeah. You know, it's interesting that Jews don't proselytize. Jews don't try to convert. They don't care. Be whatever you want to be. You know, we're Jewish and you're not, and that's okay with us. If you want to become Jewish, come on in. You know, we'll bring you in, but we're not going to try to talk you into it and go door to door the way Jehovah's Witnesses and, and, and Mormons and others do. That's up to you. It's your choice. Um, Jews have, this, have a notion of God-fearers, which to me is really fascinating. Jews are not exclusive in their religion, understanding that they're the only ones that are going to be accepted by God, even though they understand themselves as a chosen people. That's, that's another story. But the concept of God-fearers is that there are, they recognize that there are Gentiles, people outside of Judaism, who will still be in the world to come in Alam Haba, in the Gan Eden, you know, the highest heaven with them, because they were a law unto themselves and they were following and fearing God in their own way. And so why would they bother to try to convert you if that's possible for you? And so, yes, you can, you can be one or the other or neither or both. And so I know many Jews that are completely secularized. You know, they, they may have had you know, some training as they were young, but they don't follow any of the precepts of Judaism, but they're, they're Jewish by blood. And, and then there are converts who are just the opposite that are following Judaism and keeping kosher and doing the whole thing, and they haven't got a drop of Jewish blood in them. So it's, it's both, and it's kind of interchangeable. And uh, does that help? Okay. We don't know who asked it, but yeah. Okay, another one. There are a few scriptures that refer to a judgment or a judgment day. 1 Corinthians 11:31 through 32, 2 Corinthians 5:10, 1 
Revelations 20, 11 through 15. Can you comment on your take on Judgment Day and what it will involve? From the easy one to the hard one. I'm trying to do that. <laughs> Wait till you see the next one. Um, judgment Day. Here's the, here's the thing interesting to me about a judge. Shafat in, in Hebrew, it, it means judge. You all familiar with the book of Judges? Okay, there was a time in Israel's history um, where they didn't have a king and all the tribes just operated under their own local leadership. But when a national calamity would take place, when there was enemies at the gates or an invading army coming through, one of an individual would rise to the surface who would become the judge and then would gather the army together and do whatever needed to be done and, and meet the, the, the issue, the crisis at hand, and then after it was over would go back into obscurity. A judge in, in, in the Hebrew sense is a deliverer. The primary understanding is as a deliverer, um, someone who comes and saves the people from the calamity. Now, in the process of being a judge, they would also sit as a justice, as an actual judge, as we understand the term, and arbitrate disputes between tribes or clans or, or people or whatever needed to happen in order to guide the nation through the crisis. And so that was also a secondary to make decisions, to make judgments. But the primary understanding is as deliverer, as, as savior, I suppose. And so when we think about judgment day, to me the primary understanding of that is that is the day of God's deliverance. How is he going to deliver us? We think about it as him deciding who's in and who's out and making a judgment about us. But I think there's another way to look at this. Now when Jesus says, you know, at uh, or John 3.16, you know, uh, and then John 3.17, Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but to save it. There, there's an understanding there that the saving part is, is the judging part too. He didn't come to condemn, he came to save. Those who believe and trust in Jesus you know, are, are not condemned. Those who don't trust in Jesus are condemned already. You know, what, what do we take from all that? What's, what's going on here? Going back to the notion of God's love, God has already made his choice about us. He doesn't have to wait till the snapshot of our death to decide about us. He's already decided about us. I think the real question of Judgment Day is what are we going to decide? I think, and, and the, the followers of Jesus, the contemporary followers of Jesus, they expected Jesus to be coming back in their lifetime. See, this is something that, that, that is implied in Scripture and, and it's understood by scholars who have looked at the context of the time, but they expected Jesus to be coming right back in fact, there was a big controversy and Paul had to settle this because what happens to people who die before Jesus gets back? I mean, we're all followers of Jesus, but these guys have died. You know, did, did they not get delivered? Do they not get saved? Do they not get judged by Jesus because now they're dead? And said, no, Paul. And Paul's saying, no, 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 you don't understand. You know, the, the ones who have, are asleep in Christ, they're going to rise first and then they're going to be up to meet him. And, then, uh, and so he's trying to settle this and settle their minds and put them at ease and saying, no, it's not going to, everybody has access to the, the, the presence of Christ as he comes back. And so the way I look at judgment, because they do mean a day, and there is going to be a day where every one of us is going to stand face to face before this ultimate reality without this veil that this life provides. Like Paul said, we see through the glass darkly now and then face to face. There will become coming a face to face moment. 
For me, the judgment is that God has already made his choice about us. He's for us. He wants us. Have we become the kind of people that can see God as God is in that moment face to face? Or will we continue to walk right past him looking for whatever it is we expect? I think that's more the way I look at Judgment Day. That's for me. You know, I'm telling you what I'm convinced of. I can't prove that theologically. I can't exegete it out of Scripture for you. Um, But to me, it's consistent with clues that are in Scripture. And most importantly, it's consistent with the notion of the Father's love. He's not looking to exclude me. It's almost as if he can't exclude because he is love and he is inclusion. But I can certainly exclude myself. And I think that's more the separation or the wheat and the chaff or the goats and the, and the sheep and all the other imagery that's used in and around uh, surrounding a judgment day. But for me, God is rock solid. He's already decided about me. It's, it's what am I going to do in return? How am I going to respond to that? Mm. You know? And can I see this humble, unassuming God when I'm face to face with him and not think, <laughs> that can't be my God. My God's over here. Got to be someplace up on the mountaintop. You know, this guy who's trying to wash my feet, that can't be. I have no part of him. I'm not going to. Mm. You know, are we going to be able to see the God that Jesus portrayed as God or not? Mm. That is the preparation that we're doing in this life to take the blinders off, to drop our assumptions, to die to ourselves, and be able to see truth as it presents. Mm. Mm. I'd characterize it like that. Mm. That's a new twist. That's good. It's a new twist. Yeah. Thank you. I don't hold you to it if you don't agree. It's okay. Okay. Is it true that the cross Christ was crucified on is a symbol of the sun god? And then Romans is in quotations and symbols is in quotations. So I'm not quite sure where the questions, I, this one threw me. Okay. Um, they're, they're asking about if there's a pagan origin that's usually the way it's put okay. to the cross. And the answer is yes. You know, um, the, the cross used as a symbol, the cross used as a religious um, uh, you know, icon uh, goes back pretty much as far as we can go back into into archaeological history. Um, the The symbol of the sun was typically a circle with a cross inside of it, and that was understood as the sun. And you know, it was that the sun is a disc, and so the you know the, the the representation of the disc and the cross was representing probably the. There's so many interpretations of this. The compass rose north, south, east, and west, the primary points of the zodiac, the four seasons, everything about the, the sun's journey you know, was represented in this symbol. And all throughout history, the, the cross has been used in various ways. Um, the way that it's normally looked at when, when, when someone is bringing this to the table is trying to debunk Christianity or, or, or show that... that the, the Christ story or Jesus story was simply ripped off from these other traditions mm. and, and then just pasted over uh, whatever Jesus was. And, you know, I think that's a, that's a bridge too far. There's not a, a logical connection between the two. 
Yes, the cross has been used, but the cross is a universal symbol. I mean, just think of the human form. Just stand upright with your feet together and your arms outstretched. You form a cross. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the cross is hardwired in. This shape is hardwired in to just life and, and the world as we know it. And so it's, it's natural that a symbol like the cross, the circle, and other symbols are going to be used mystically in every other way. But Jesus was really crucified. And the Romans had a particular way of crucifying their, their victims, you know. And it doesn't look typically like the way that we understand the crucifix to look. It was usually it was what's called a towel cross. The upright was left in the ground. Wood was so scarce in, in, in first century Judaism that they, they couldn't afford a lot of wood. And so this cross was, was, was stationary. It was planted by the Romans in a place of execution. And plus... That whole cross, if you were trying to carry it around, would weigh over 300, 350 pounds. So it was only the cross piece that the victims were made to carry. And, and then it was placed on top of that stationary pole. But people were really crucified, and that was a cross. And uh, it was a different idea. And, then, and, you know, they were probably nailed here rather than here because this doesn't support the weight. Most likely the legs straddled the bottom of the cross and the nails were put through the heel bone. I mean, there's a lot of differences in terms of of the way that archaeology has showed us the Romans actually did this. But the people understood that that Jesus was on that cross. Interestingly enough, though, the, the first followers of Jesus didn't use the cross as their primary symbol. They used symbols of life rather than symbols of death and the early Jewish followers saw that that instrument of execution as such a heinous thing that it wasn't until about three centuries or four centuries later that it started to become more commonly used as a symbol of Christianity and really after the reign of Constantine when it was really then you know put into practice it wasn't until the sixth century or later that the church started having the corpus the actual body on the cross before then it was just the cross itself and so there's an evolution to this thing where where the cross has become more and more a symbol of Christianity. The early symbols were the fish, the ichthus, mm-hmm. concentric circles representing father and son in eternal uh, connection. Uh, the anchor, which uh, was another symbol of safety and a symbol of life and preservation of life. And then it evolved into this. And so, yes, it's true that the cross predates Jesus as a mystical symbol. Does that debunk Jesus or the use of the cross to, uh, to, uh, to symbolize Christianity? Of course not. You know? It was something that happened in history that was then reflected in the iconography later on. And of course, the cross as a symbol, Jews couldn't really get past it. I have a friend who's Jewish and say, you know, Jews would no, lo- no more wear a cross around their neck than we would wear an electric chair around our neck as a pendant, you know. But for the Christians and the Gentile Christians, especially three centuries, four centuries later, the cross became the symbol of the atonement. The cross became the symbol of the sacrifice. The cross became the symbol of the, the connection with God. And that's really what was being focused on there rather than simply an instrument of execution and torture. So, um, yes and no, I mm, guess is the answer <laughs> to that question. Good history lesson. Okay. <laughs> yes.
I don't know that that he chose crucifixion. The Romans chose crucifixion. You know, if the Romans had a different way of executing their political prisoners, then it would have been something else that that would have killed Jesus. But um, remember, Jesus was crucified for sedition. He was not crucified for blasphemy or for anything else. The the Jewish authorities wanted him out of the way and kicked him over to the to the Romans to to kill him. But he was killed as as a rebel. He was killed as someone who was fomenting unrest in in the in the empire. And they killed him the typical way that they that they kill any of their prisoners, and and sending a very definite message. So if if Jesus had come at another point in history, then I suppose it would have been something else. So if your question is is, is strictly about the method, then I think that's a historical fact. You know, if your question is more on the lines of why did God sacrifice his son for our salvation, then I think for me the answer goes more toward the cross not being a a mechanical method by which we change God's mind about us, a mechanical method by which we close a gap that was created because we were simply born into original sin, I don't see it that way. I don't see God's love working that way. And I think that there is ample clues and wiggle room in the actual words of Scripture that allows us to look at the cross more as the ultimate expression of a God who will withhold nothing from us. Absolutely nothing. You know That everything that he has is going to be poured out. And Jesus, as the Son of the Father, as the one who comes exactly as the Father comes and lives and relates is, is showing us that he withholds nothing. He did that through his entire life. He withheld nothing. And when he is coming up to the point where he is going to be crucified, he still walked willingly into that crucible. He did not hold back. He did not stop being who he was. And he poured everything out. You know, it's, it's to me and, and to some scholars have said that the cross is the end of of all restrictions. The cross is the end of anything that would separate us from God. And yet what we've done is we've looked at the cross in such a way that it creates another set of restrictions, another set of things that we have to adhere to and believe and understand in order to be one with God. And yet really what Paul is telling us, it's the end of all that. It's it's God just pouring everything out. We don't need to go and and kill animals anymore and go be purified or do this and do that in order to be one with God every time that we, we break a law or every time that we move out of relationship. All that is done. It's over. It's all removed. The way is open. You know, the veil is torn from top to bottom and, and the way is open. And so how are we going to look at that cross is going to be another thing that we're going to have to decide for ourselves. You know, I, I can't decide that for you. I can, I can tell you my views like I'm doing right now, but you're going to have to take the journey and find out how do you synthesize this? How do you put these, juxtapose these things together? You know, your understanding of the cross is going to directly affect your understanding of God's nature, which is going to directly affect your understanding of God's love and the dynamic relationship he has with you. And your part in all this is our part simply to obey, to come under a blood covering, to understand Jesus in a particular way, and that by which we're saved. And how do we know when we've done that perfectly enough? See, this is where we get right back to the hamster wheel and constantly trying to be good enough. And so... When I present something like that, the, the method and the madness and the reason is is that what does the cross mean from a point of view 
of a completely loving God who has never turned his back on us, who has never withheld anything and would never do so. You know, how can we understand the cross? We don't want to take the centrality of the cross away. We don't want to take our Christ-centeredness away. The, the, the crucifix remains central in our understanding of our relationship to our God through Jesus Christ. But we can understand it in such a way that it still maintains the notion of a loving father and allows us to move into that perfect love that casts out the fear, that creates all the obsessive compulsive patterns that take our lives down non-kingdom paths. You know, I think the other thing that we're probably missing is that to us salvation is entrance into heaven and avoidance of hell in the next life. And to a Jew, salvation is spiritual liberation right here and right now. Remember, the Jews are so focused here. And so to be saved is to be set free right here, right now, to be able to have the kind of relationship that Jesus is talking about when he talks about kingdom. And Jesus was living that all the way to the cross and beyond. You know, I don't know if that even answers your question, but I, I hope it gets in the ballpark. <laughs> How are we doing? It's a little after nine, so I think... What do we do? What do we do? Yeah. yeah. Oh, you, you, I thought you were asking a question. You're, you're doing me even the cut signal. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Save them for the next time. You know, I Sounds think good. Once every three or four months, this is just a great something to do. Did, did, did most of you, was there any one question that, you know, you came to hear your answer to that we didn't get to? Because I tried to put everything on top from anything that, you know, we got early on. She okay. even knew who asked the question and figured you must be present to win. So she put Well, only only when we started getting a lot more questions. So <laughs> Are there any burning desires? Is there anything out there that someone just really wants to ask? You know, I, I. You don't have to wait three months. Yeah. It seems like lately, most of the uh, the question and answers that I do is via email. It's, it's even more than face to face. You know, people are always emailing about this and about that. You know, Doug is filling my inbox every day. And I love it. I love it. This is this is what I kind of live for. It's just it's it's great. I love to be able to do this. So. You know, I, I know this turned into more of a monologue than, than, than I would like. And, and maybe, you know, next time where we don't necessarily need to go through as much of the intro stuff, we can have more of a dialogue. That's what I love about Wednesday nights, our book study. It is just free-flowing. I mean, it's just crazy. Things are bouncing all over. That, to me, is, is, is really healthy. So this is more of a monologue. There may be things that I said that you just never got a chance to object to and, and to, uh, you know, throw the rock that you have under your seat and that sort of thing. Those are the kind of things that we really do need and want to talk about. Let's, let's pick up the conversation. This is just kind of a, a lead-off, just kind of a, a jump into the water. But hopefully it's stirred up things that we can continue to talk about. Remember that there are no specific answers to a lot of these questions. You know, what we want to do is start moving down a path that allows us to ask better and better questions. Not expecting a specific answer that changes, but, but asking better questions and, and more and more moving into 
uh, an experience that we talked about. So anything that we can do to at least talk through some of the gnarly things, you know, like what Robin just asked, some of the gnarly things that maybe takes another you know, log jam out of the way, another speed bump out of the way that allows you to continue more and more to just completely and vulnerably open up and, and another chip comes off the shoulder. That's all really good stuff. And that's what we're really doing. What we're doing is more subtraction than addition. It's not like we're adding answers to us. We're getting rid of some of the objections and some of the things that have kept us from being free enough to just really fall into this thing. So maybe look at it more that way. And, and anything that we can do, anything that Frank can do, I mean, that's, that's why we're here. You know, Scott, all of us, just ask us questions and let's start the dialogue. You know, call us up and tell us you want to come in and and sit in the chair for an hour and we'll talk there. Or we'll do it on the phone or by text or by email. It doesn't really matter. But we really want to, to start that, that journey or continue the journey with you in a more connected way. So thanks for being here, right? Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. All right.